Please remain standing as we continue worship with the reading from Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. All right. And I think someone else is supposed to be coming up at this point. There he is. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, you know, he's going to leave into it. It's going to leave you up here to hang, man. Yeah, gonna, see what he's going to do. You, you know. preach. What's up, y'all? Y'all doing good? How many of you lost a bet because you thought the mustache would be gone? Still here. Still here. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up, Ben. Oh, wow. Wow. Low blow, man. On Christmas. God. Good morning. Uh, close to Christmas. I'm Chris. I'm the pastor here. Welcome to the chaos. I'm glad you're here with us today. Uh, we are in week two of a season called Advent. Um, it's when Christians like candles in attempts to root our hearts on the why behind the what of this whole crazy season. Last week, we just acknowledged how difficult that really is, practically speaking, in the most stressful time of year. Uh, the challenge is, last week was if you don't The challenge last week was, if you don't actively fight against the chaos and stress of this season um, and remind your own heart, like what this whole thing's about, dude, the whole thing's going to ring hollow for you. Uh, You will be flung to a superficial enjoyment of the whole season, unless you figure out how to root your heart on the why behind the what. So during Advent, we light candles. We remember what Christ has done and what he has promised to do, which is come again and fully and completely bring his victory into the world, vanquish darkness and sin comprehensively from the universe. That's the promise of the New Testament, that he came, yes, but that he's gonna come again. And so Advent, we sit between these two places, the fact that Jesus came and the fact that he said, I'm gonna come again. Therefore, Advent reminds us that our entire Christian life, your entire Christian life, if you consider yourself a Christian, is marked by hope-filled waiting. That's it. That's where you find yourself in the story if you're a Christian. We're called to waiting saturated with hope. Y'all, the entire Christian life 
is to be leaning forward in hopeful anticipation that Jesus will do the things he said he's going to do. The whole kit and caboodle. Is that a word? I don't know. The whole thing is supposed to be leaning into a promise that's been made to us as Christians, that he will come back, that he will right the wrongs in the world, vanquish injustice and darkness and sin and rape and all the, all the things, man. Genocide, all the things that have marked human history. Jesus has promised to come back and vanquish those once and for all from the universe. That's the hope. Therefore, guys, if you're a Christian in this room, dude, this is not an overstatement. This is not a hyperbole, hyperbole to make a point. Every moment of every day is to be marked by hope. Yeah. Every moment, y'all, we praise, we obey, we love in hope, man. We suffer, we sacrifice, we endure, we wait in hope. It's to be the whole thing. It's saturating the entire Christian life. It's leaning forward. Psalm 71, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. The New Testament writers understood God as the God of hope. It's what they called him in Romans 15. Now, we didn't say this last week, but I want to dovetail this in as we uh, go on to the next part of the story. Um, hope is such an essential part of Advent in the Christian life. It's the reason that most of these candles are purple. Um, one of them's pink. It's the joy, joy candle. So it's like a little, little bit more, right? So the, the Christ candle's white. All the other candles are dark. Do you know why? It represents darkness, these candles represent actually, more specifically, the darkness of early dawn. They're not completely black, are they? No, because of Jesus, our darkness is not devoid of hope. Y'all, we live in darkness. We live in darkness, bro. But because of Jesus, it is not a darkness devoid of hope. It's the kind of darkness in which we already begin to see the light rising over the horizon. It's like the early dawn. As I've, that's, that's where Christians live, in twilight. We live in a twilight of sorts where we see the light coming, but it's not come fully. This is the promise of the New Testament, and this is where we find ourselves in the story of Christianity. Over the past week, the sunrise has been pregnant with meaning for me. I've gotten up early and watched for some, not every week, I'm not Superman, all right, but every day rather, but I've gotten up early and some of the mornings that I've gotten up early and watched the horizon slowly be delineated in the darkness. As I've watched the darkness slowly fade to brighter and brighter and brighter to the full strength of the sun shines on everything, it's been pregnant with hope. It's reminded me that I live in a twilight and that I'm supposed to be a person of hope, that my entire life is not railing at the darkness, but pointing at the light. Amen. Christian. Is your life railing at the darkness? Is that all we offer? Just commentary on how dark things are and it's all gone to hell in a handbasket and everything's ruined? That's not, the Christian, that's not the Christian life. That's not the biblical paradigm. We are people pregnant with hope. We are people who have made our lives point to the light that's coming over the horizon. And some of us have lost it, y'all. Some of us have lost a sense of hope at all. Some of us, we'd say, there's no amount of hope that is in my life right now. The light of hope is faded from your eyes and Advent's calling you back to be a person whose life is saturated with hope. Cynic, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Step in to Christianity. Our God is a God of hope. Amen. Quit walking in church with your arms crossed, pointing out all the wrong things. Our God is a God of hope. Find the light and point to it. 
Quit walking into your friendship relationships and pointing at the darkness. Our God is a God of hope. Find the light and point to it. I'm done. Let's just pray and go home. That's just the intro. Good Lord. All right. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, let's just pray. Okay. Um, so Mary, that's who we're talking about today. The second candle is uh, the candle of Mary and Joseph. Um, and what we sit with more specifically is our cause of hope, uh, which is, to put a fine point on it, Jesus, <laughs> and maybe to zero in a little bit more today, the incarnation. That's what we're talking about. That God, the creator God who made the heavens and earth and the earth would rescue humanity through a nobody girl in a nobody town. Mary, a young girl in first century patriarchal society. God chose the easily dismissible in a backwoods town to start his rescue plan for the universe. Uh, women in the first century in Jewish society could not even testify in court. Mary was not only a woman, but a young woman. Most theologians will put her around 13, 14 years old, as that's when women in that society were betrothed. Now, when I grew up in high school, if a 13 or 14-year-old was pregnant, kids would maybe call her names or avoid her. In Mary's day, we're talking about complete, utter social ruin and abandonment. We're talking maybe even execution, according to Levitical law. Um, not to mention, so pregnant by itself, okay, in first century patriarchal Jewish society, not to mention Mary's claim that God did it, right? oh, So that's heresy, all right? And these boys don't take heresy sitting down, right? By all accounts, Mary's in danger of losing her life, being stoned to death. We tend to over-romanticize and domesticate biblical stories. We paint them in soft pastels and we think, no crying he makes, oh, how sweet. But for Mary, saying yes to the plan of God meant complete, utter social ruin. Her family would probably abandon her. We know that Joseph's intentions was to quietly dismiss her after the marriage. So, not, so maybe she won't get killed, right? For Mary, trusting in the plan of God, how is this landing on you right now with what it means to follow Jesus? Some of us have grew up in an idea with this kind of subtle subconscious idea, subterranean idea that if we follow Jesus, things will go well. Can I just tell you, that's not what happened for Mary. When she said yes to God, it meant utter social ruin and maybe even death. It's why in the very next text, which we didn't read, I don't think, um, she leaves town for the countryside to lay low with her cousin, right? Mary said yes to God. If you will say yes to God, let me tell you something. I'll tell you what will happen, all right? Uh, number one, joy, hope, peace, like supernatural power will flood into your life. But just like for Mary, it does not mean it will be comfortable. It does not mean it'll be safe. It does not mean it'll be free of risk. In fact, John, Wim John Wimber said, you spell faith, R-I-S-K. By definition, faith involves risk. It's not blind risk, but it's risk nonetheless. During Advent, we talk about making room for Jesus, haven't we? Let every heart prepare him room, joy to the world. I think people can struggle with this idea. What are you talking about, dude? What does it even mean? What does that even mean, make room for Jesus? Well, Mary is a really interesting case study of what it looks like to make room for Jesus. Here's Mary with the Son of God forming in her belly. <laughs> That's making room, isn't it? And that little baby, little bean baby, got a lot of preggers in this group right now. Something's going on. I don't know what it is. I need to be careful. <clears throat> that little baby bean just, just taking up more and more room in that belly. 
making mama more and more uncomfortable, causing her feet to swell, her stomach to turn. Guys, anyone ever been pregnant? Guys? No guys. No guys. So you can't relate to this. But my wife says it's nine months. I mean, it's not her favorite season. Okay, I'll just say that. Nine months of not, like, all of a sudden it takes 14 pillows to sleep, you know? Like my bed, just a pile of pillows, the nausea, the swelling. I'm surprised I'm not hearing amens from all the ladies in here. There's like four pregnant ladies right now, right? Fatigue, right? The appetite changes, right? When the baby's coming, mommy's body makes crazy adjustments. So does daddy has to too. He's got to paint the room and move the furniture and buy the crib, right? Jesus used labor as a metaphor for the emotions we feel as his followers waiting for him to come back. Did you know that? Jesus used labor as a metaphor for the emotions we feel as his followers. In John 16, he says this, when a woman gives birth, she has sorrow because her hours come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I love meditating on this. Uh, Mary making room for Jesus. This had very real, practical, physical implications for her. And I want to say to you, uh, the reason some of you have not really accepted Jesus into your life is because you will not make very real, practical changes in your life. You just won't. For you, God is all spiritual pixie dust type stuff. And you therefore never adjust practical aspects of your life to make room for Jesus. There are things you have to do if you're going to make room for Jesus. In the interior of your heart and minds, dude, lust and anger and unforgiveness have to go. Idols of popularity and power, they have to be pushed to the side. The picture in Revelation, y'all, is of Jesus knocking on the door of his own church. That's a really profound picture. And I think when we come to moments like this in our own life, what Jesus often finds are our hearts are slammed full. Just like poor little Mary and Joseph found the ends slammed full, right? Because you're refusing to make practical room in your heart and life. Guys, spirituality doesn't mean it never touches the physical. You are physical and you're spiritual. You're both. You have to make physical adjustments if you're going to welcome in Jesus, right? Paul in Galatians, um, you calls to mind the imagery of childbearing when he talks about Christ being formed in you. So interesting, guys. I don't know if you ever do thematic studies of the Bible. It's fascinating, right? Galatians 4.19, my dear children, for whom I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Y'all, just like the baby grew in Mary's womb, Jesus longs to take up more space in your life. He wants to grow in significance, <laughs> maybe a discomfort, right? Grow in power and influence, grow in love and affection. And the hope is that you will say yes to the necessary changes to make room for him. It's very, very practical, guys. I think most of us miss this because the more practical it is, the less spiritual we think it is. And that's just not true. Guys, it means, listen to me, don't zone out, dude. It means setting real time aside to be with Jesus. It means making real, tangible, discernible differences in how you live, right? Life change is expected when you're anticipating a baby. It's just, and if you're not, you're an idiot, okay? Like, (laughs) your life's over, okay? (laughs) I didn't say that, I didn't say that. I love my kids, love my kids, all right? But, okay, 
I do remember, I do remember going to Mellow Mushroom after our first baby was born. And like, we're like, we're like, let's go play Frisbee in the park. <laughs> and then go to Mellow Mushroom with our friends. And like, we didn't even play Frisbee. Like we got there, she was crying and we just thought, well, are we going, we're going home guys. See you later. Life's over. Anyway. When you are expecting the presence of someone, okay, you make real, physical, tangible changes to make room for that person. What does it look like to expect? What would your life look like if you expected the presence and power of Jesus to show up? Like, what would it really look like if you expected him to be with you? If you expected him to meet you in the darkness? If you expected his wisdom to land on you when you open the book, I think it would change how you read the Bible. What would it look like in your life to expect the presence of Jesus? But for Mary, the physical ramifications were only part of it. And probably nowhere near as bad as the social ramifications for being pregnant out of wedlock and then pulling the God card on it, right? Again, pull the story out of pastels, okay? Consider the realities here. If you're a parent of a teenager, can you imagine your 15-year-old daughter coming home with a baby bump and then saying, don't worry, Dad, I'm still a virgin. God did it. I've, I've heard the God card pulled on a lot of things, right? But that's not what the Holy Spirit does, sweetie. And you're grounded till you're 35, right? Like, what are they teaching you at Riverstone? I knew they were wackos, right? It's not what the Holy Spirit does, okay? Go to your room. What kind of deranged person pulls the God card on being pregnant? Y'all, okay, let's sit with it. This is unprecedented in the history of God's people. Unprecedented. There was no theological grid for this, okay? Despite the fact of the really clear prophecies in Isaiah 7, given 400 years before this, that a virgin would, but you know, they forgot this. You're crazy. Mary, you're crazy. You're not that girl, okay? Okay, not only did she clearly have sex outside of marriage, but she's saying God did it, right? Uh, today, our objections to things like this are science. We say this is scientifically impossible for a virgin to give birth. For the Jews, the objections were that this was an theologically repulsive notion. How dare you say God would do that? He is too holy. He's too powerful. He is too mighty. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool, little girl. He didn't impregnate you. He never would, never could limit himself to you in form, much less take baby form, much less through the highly questionable avenue of a teenager girl. And if he did, he wouldn't come to suffer and die. No, he would come to vanquish his enemies. He would come to rule with an iron rod and destroy all the wickedness in the world. Your claim is heresy, Mary. It's blasphemy. This is lost on us. We've become inoculated to this idea of incarnation. You're inoculated. You think, oh, of course Jesus came. Dude, step out of the bubble, man. This is insane. This is a ridiculous claim. The offensive nature of the incarnation is lost on us. This is sacrilege. No theological grid for this. This is a fascinating thought. For, Mary, for many in Mary's day, and even in our day, this is fascinating. It is our pride in our understanding of God that stops us from being able to see what he is doing. See, it's often because we have put God in a box and we've said, you work this way and not that way. You can do this, but not that. That when he begins to do things around us, uh, we will not only uh, avoid it, we might even condemn it, and we might even do things to start, stop it. 
We might even get in front of it and say, this is not God. Go to your room for 35 years, right? This is a real thing. In their day, it was their pride and their understanding of God that stopped them from seeing what God was doing right in front of their eyes. They said, God doesn't do that. He doesn't work like that. It was their theology that blinded them to God. Hello? Hello? It was their theology. I know I'm dancing on, I'm just reading the book, yo. All right? Like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. I don't know a virgin had a baby. All right, that's crazy, right? I don't know, I'm just reading the book, man. And she said it was God, and we believe he was. You're crazy. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you're crazy, man. Like, get over it, stop trying to be cool. You believe a virgin had a baby, and then he was God. And then he took on the suffering and darkness in the world and will one day come back to vanquish all injustice. I'll be crazy, bro. Like, let me in, man. Let me in with the crazies. Their theology blinded them to what God was doing because God was more humble than they ever imagined. He was more humble than they ever imagined and he was more loving than they could ever dream. Because they had put him in a box, they missed it. Do you have room in your view of reality to be surprised by God? in unexpected ways, or if it doesn't look like you think it should or how it looked for you like in high school or however it looked for you 20 years ago, do you immediately dismiss it or worse, condemn it? Or worse, get in front of it and try to stop it? Can we walk through things with God that are hard to explain and that may even look you like, make you look like a fool and may even cause you to lose friends, trusting that he's working something out that we might not see the entire scope of? This is exactly where Mary was. What is the thing going on in your life right now that you're saying this does not make sense? Can I just tell you, you might have your face smeared against a stained glass window and that's why you can't see the whole picture. And we never can in our time and place. We have the uh, privilege of retrospect with Mary's situation. We can say, oh, of course she trusted. Of course it happened the way it ought to happen. But you can't see it in the moment. This is why Mary is revered many traditions. Do you know the amount of trust it took her to say, let it be done to me as you've said? It's remarkable. Some of us have put God in such clean, easily contained boxes with how he can and can't engage that we run the risk of reducing what was meant to be a vibrant, exciting, ever-growing, hope-filled relationship with a been-there-done-that religious philosophy with no real power. God works in ways that often does not make sense to us. The incarnation means that God's come to us. Pentecost means that he's still with us. Do you have room in theology for God to speak to in ways that you don't have a grid for? Maybe in a way that would be easily ignored. Remember, it was through a whisper that God spoke to the prophet. And it was through a baby that God redeemed the world. I believe with all my heart, God wants to reveal his humble love to you in surprising ways that may seem mundane and unspiritual. Do you have eyes to see it? Do you have ears to hear it? What if the living God wants to speak to you through the warnings of your spouse? You got ears for that, bro? No, God doesn't work through that. <laughs> right? What if the living God wants to talk to you through your dummy friend? You got room for that, bro? Hmm? I'm just not going to blow some of your minds right now. Let me just blow your mind right here. What if God wants to talk to you through your ADD imperfect pastor? <laughs> Look, I'm being real. All right, some of you dismissed that months ago. 
I'm just going to be real with you. All right? You ruled it out. You say, that dude's weird. I'm going to keep going because my family's in, but I don't get it. (laughs) What if God wants to speak to your heart, your inner man, your inner woman through some silly kids movie like Beauty and the Beast? Watching a Disney movie with your kids and the Holy Spirit says, you're a beast, but I can love you and I can transform you and I can take you from your beastliness and my love can transform you to beauty. Daddy, why are you crying? (laughs) I mean, talk about social condemnation, right? Crying at a Disney movie? Come on, man. All of us. Okay, but let's stick with the point. Like, you got room for that? You got eyes to see God speaking through crazy things like that? Because here, God's speaking through an easily dismissible 13-year-old nobody in a nobody town. And he saves the universe through it. Right? All of us have a tendency to put God in boxes. To put God in a box. Put our, everything in a box. We put our relationships in a box. Right? We like predictable, controllable relationships. We do this with friends. We do this with family. We do this with God. But I can say to you now, God is alive. Right? And speaks and leads in unexpected ways that will put stress on your theology and your reputation which let's be real, for most of us is the real issue. We don't want to look bad. Can I just tell you that was out the window for Mary? There's no getting around it. And if you read the prophets, it was out for them too. Tim Mackey points out the Bible is a minority report. If you read the prophets, you realize, dude, these dudes are being tracked down and put in prison. These dudes are being persecuted by their culture and they are the guys pinning the words of the Bible. The Bible's a minority report. It was written by people who were being condemned. People who, were, people who their society was saying, that is not God. He's not gonna destroy, Babylon's not gonna come. Put this man in prison. Read Jeremiah. Dude, the whole time they're tracking, I mean, come on, read the prophets. Dude, the ver- the, vir- the virgin birth means God chose to start his redemption plan for the world in scandal, in obscurity. It was then and is now in a way that can be easily dismissed, easily rejected scientifically or theology, whatever you want to reject it for. For whatever reason, he chose to save the universe in a way that can be easily ignored. That was the plan of God, right? The God's... That's the way God wanted salvation to enter the world. It is a humble love. It's a way in which anyone can walk into it like you just walked in this room. And it's given in a way in which anyone can reject it just as easily, right? And it pushes back against our tendency to put God in a box. This is what I mean. Maybe some of you think to experience God, it has to be quiet, has to be somber, has to be reverent. Okay, I'm not going to say, I mean, I love that. Maybe God wants to reveal himself to you through joy and laughter and dancing. Maybe you think if God, God has always spoken to me through community, through people, I need to hang out with more people who are Christians and God. Okay, maybe he wants to speak to you in solitude now, bro. Maybe you think it needs to be wild and spontaneous. Because that's how it was when you got saved. Well, maybe now God wants to reveal himself to you in structures and rhythms and quiet. You got room for that? You got room for God to pursue you now through means that you have dismissed as, I don't think that's how God works. I'm telling you, if you don't have room for that, you will stall. 
And you will begin to try to recreate your experience you had 20 years ago. God's doing a new thing right now in the way in which he wants to engage you. And it will not look like it looked 25 years ago, if you're that old, to remember being a Christian. Okay? (laughs) We want to demystify God. Can I just say to you, there is wonder and mystery in knowing God. Right? The Bible is not just a history book. It's his living word intended to reveal his active will and presence and power among us today. See, we try to make God compliant with our modern understanding of the world. We try to make God fit in with our sentiment, and we end up with the God of your own making, right? Like in the late 1700s, when Thomas Jefferson cut out all the supernatural components of the gospel, made a little something called the Jefferson Bible. See, for him, the philosophy of Jesus was fine to inform government, but supernatural miracles, miraculous conceptions... Raising from the dead, it was just unscientific and thus cut himself off from knowing the God of the Bible. And many of us do this today. Because we cannot understand it on our terms, we say it must not have happened that way, right? Because we don't have a place for mystery and wonder in our faith anymore. The New Testament writers refer to the gospel as the mystery of God. That's why we say it every week, the mystery of our faith. Colossians 2.2, God's mystery, which is Christ. Ephesians 6.19, the mystery of the gospel. Ephesians 3.8, the mystery of Christ. Every week we remind ourselves that there is mystery to this thing. We don't get it all. And it causes us to marvel and wonder. Y'all, the gospel causes more questions than answers for me. The incarnation causes more questions than answers. Why would God love me so much? Why would he suffer? How would he put on flesh? Why would he be willing to die? Part of the beauty of Advent is it calls us to sit with things, ponder things that we don't have the answers to, and wonder, to let our hearts be filled with hope precisely because we don't understand it all. And let me say them. True love and self-sacrifice is always mysterious. Always mysterious. Come on, man, like, you don't tell me when you know you deserve wrath, when you know you deserve condemnation and someone loves you in its place, you tell me you're not dumbstruck? You tell me you're not like, whoa, seriously? Dude, true love and self-sacrifice always causes mystery, always causes wonder. Some of us, we're not wondering anymore in our Christian life because we forgot that God loves us, that he pursued us in our current state of sinfulness and death. Of course, it's gonna, there's gonna be mystery, man. You gotta have room for mystery, right? His love confounds our reason and clears our thinking at the same time, right? And if we don't slow down to personally consider these things, and if all you have through this season is all the stuff your culture is throwing at you, right? Like, Christ, like Christ, Christmas is gonna become sentiment and wishful thinking, And let's sing, Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer again, right? And the drum that I will continually beat during the busiest season of the year, when everything in you is saying, go faster, go faster, it's not going to get done, I'm saying, go slower, go slower, stop. Stop running around like a chicken with your head cut off and create space for God in your life, right? Think of the acts of getting up earlier to read and pray as an act of rebellion against the triviality of our age. Dude, I want to rebel against that. I don't want my life to get sucked into superficial understandings of what it means to be a human, superficial understandings of what it means to be a father, a husband, 
I don't want that. I don't want to rebel against that junk. I want to fight against that with all my heart, man. Think of it as an act of rebellion. I'm going to seek God when no one else is around. I'm going to rebel against the ocean of triviality that is Christmas in our culture. I just want to tell you, man, put that alarm on. Get up while it's still dark and marvel as the light comes over the horizon. And let your heart be reminded in that moment that I'm supposed to be a person filled with anticipation towards the light. Towards the light. That he's promised he's gonna come. Dude, in the active, crazy, frantic busyness, we just don't ponder anymore. We don't contemplate. We want drive-through spirituality, guys. Can I just say to you, efficiency is a wonderful, I'm all about it, dude. I'm all about efficient systems. I'm all about, let's do this faster. It's an easy way to do this. Like I'm all about, don't waste my time. Don't waste your time. Let's like knock out the middleman, right? All about it. Efficiency is great for systems. Efficiency is horrible for your relationships. It's horrible for your relationships with your friends. It's horrible for your relationship with your family. It's horrible for your relationship with God. Drive-through spirituality spirituality is an oxymoron. Can't do it. It's impossible. You got to park. You got to get out. You gotta sit, you gotta wait, you gotta contemplate, meditate. The Old Testament, by many people, is called Jewish meditation literature because it's meant to be read and reread and meditated on. The psalmist, it's the psalmist itself, the author of the Psalms, would always put this word in selah. That's all I'm telling you to do, man. Selah. You know what it means? It's a musical connotation, they think, and they, they think it means sustain. A sustain on a note. Selah simply means this deserves more attention than you think. Selah. If you see that in the Psalms, put your book down. Sit back. And as Eugene Peterson says, let the meaning work its way through your blood. We can't read the Bible. He has this quote. I won't pull it. But along the lines of, the Bible requires readers who aren't bent over the page, mercilessly working through the words. No, the reading of the Bible requires a reader who can read and sit back and breathe it in and let its meaning work its way through you. But I'm telling you, apply that to the incarnation. Sit back, breathe it in. What does it mean that God came to us? What does it mean for you? Right, let me just give you, let me end with this, okay? Let me just start your contemplation and meditation, if you should so choose to do this, on the incarnation for you personally. What does it mean that God came to us? The incarnation, this is what uh, Tim Keller categories that he gave me. The incarnation immediately is going to put people in one of three categories. It's going to create either you're a sec, it's going to reveal that you're a secular person, that you're a religious person, or that you're a Christian. And yes, a religious person is often at odds with a Christian. A secular person says the incarnation's hogwash, the virgin birth is scientifically impossible. The religious person says, yes, the incarnation happened to show us the things we have to do to measure up. The religious person says, we have to muster our way to God through self-will, maybe self-hatred and discipline. And Jesus was solely our example and good luck living up to his standards, buddy. You're the Sermon on the Mount. Religious people, right? Gotta say, you gotta, you gotta muster it, you gotta live up to it. Religion says you have to fight your way to God. Christianity says God fought his way to you. We tracking? Right? 
biblical Christians can't be lumped in with, relig- with the religious lots. Religion says you need to pursue God. The Christianity says God pursued you. Religion says, if I do the right things, I'll leave earth and go to heaven. Christianity says, outside of your merit, heaven has come to you. Religion says, Jesus was just an example. Good luck. Christianity says, he is your redeemer. Cling to him, right? Religious, religion offers advice on how to live. Religion says, if you do this, this will happen. The incarnation is good news, not advice. The incarnation means this has been done on your behalf. Religion says you need to do this. The Bible says this has been done. That's why it's called good news. Good news. I gave this picture last year and I'll give it again, man. What's the difference between news and advice? Advice means this. Let's say you're going to war and your general comes over the hill and he says, they're in the valley. If we circle around and flank them on the back and we send someone over here and our archers are from here, we will win. That's advice. News is he comes back and he says, they're all dead. They're dead. We've won. We've not done anything. And we've, that's news, man. The gospel is news. Your victory has been won for you. This is why we're filled with hope even in darkness because it's not on our merit. It's not on our activity. It's not on our action. It's not, on, it's not resting on us anymore. It's good news. That's the gospel. Some of us today are hearing that for the first time. You think, man, I've, I've been really trying hard to do this thing with all this advice. I'm telling you, that's religion. The Bible's gonna say it's been done. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. You know Buddha's last words? Continuously strive. Those are massively different, aren't they? The gospel is that the work has been done. That's why it's good news. That's what it means, man. I want to invite you into that good news. And you know what that good news means for us in this season? That we get to rest in the finished work of Jesus. It means that we're not working our fingers to the bone to prove our value anymore. It means that we're not desperately, frantically holding on to things to prove that we have worth. Oh, there it was. In all my years, I've never done that. That's the first time I've done that. The God, it's okay, Mary, don't worry about it, it's fine. I'll just just stand in a puddle for the rest of the time. Yeah, Yeah, see, that's right, clearly. All right, right, so I guess the sermon's over. Uh, (laughs) You guys get the drift. Um, let me just leave you with this, guys, as we, um, as we leave today. Um, what would it look like for you if this season uh, were marked by what Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? The image is that of giving it, giving it a, a place of priority and a centerpiece in your life. The way we decorate our living rooms is we decide where the TV goes and everything else goes in reference to that. What if the interior of your life, you said, I'm going to make the incarnation the centerpiece. I'm going to sit on this in this season. I'm going to ask. I'm going to put everything else in relation to that. What does it mean that God came to me? That God pursued me? What if that was the song we kept singing throughout this season, that God has pursued us? Listen, if you're here today, and that's the first time you've heard the gospel presented in that type of way, that's the first time you've heard that God came to us to do the things that we couldn't do, and you want to step into that, we have people on either side of the stage that would love to pray with you about that. So let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Jesus, God, thank you that what we are brought into, what we are drawn into is not a religion for death, Lord. God, we're not saved to more rules. We're saved to you. 
So Father, where we are neglecting the living, active presence of Jesus in our lives, help us to repent. Lord, help us to push aside the things that are demanding our attention to give our attention to what matters. And Father, would you forgive us, Lord, for being people who are so preoccupied with the darkness that we never acknowledge and point to the light. Make us people who point to the light, God. Make us people full of light, full of hope. God, your spirit can do this. We trust you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Have an excellent week, guys. Hope to see you next time.